This I recall to mind, and therefore have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, correctly understanding the word of truth. Before we open the word of truth this evening, let's make sure we're ready to study God's word. And we do that through the simple procedure of 1 John 1, 9. The grace of God has provided a simple grace recovery procedure that will be the focus of our study tonight. No matter what you have done in your life, no matter how big a failure you have been, no matter how grand a sinner you have been, God has a solution and a provision so that you can recover and reverse your decline in the spiritual life and get back on track and grow to spiritual maturity. There's no sin, no problem, nothing you can do that is too great for the grace of God to handle. So we will focus on that this evening, but first let's make sure we're in fellowship, a few moments of silent prayer to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, your grace has provided a perfect solution to the sin in our lives, both in terms of salvation and in terms of our spiritual life. In your omniscience, you knew every single sin we would commit in our lives, and you made every provision for that. You are perfect, and your plan is perfect, and your grace is greater than anything that we can do. Father, now as we study your grace, we study the recovery procedures that you have given us, we pray that we can be encouraged and challenged by the magnificence of your grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Three announcements before we get started. Announcement number one is that there is a memorial service tomorrow night. I believe it is at 7 o'clock at North Stonington Bible Church for uh, Patricia Corson, Alan Corson's mother who went to be with the Lord last week and is now face-to-face with the Lord and Reverend Jay Chapel is conducting the service. Then there will be a memorial service here at 2 p.m. next Tuesday, January 4th, uh, for Tommy Monolakis. Third announcement, there is a church New Year's Eve party at the uh, Regals Friday night. That is for those of you who are celebrating the last year of the 20th century. Somebody... Emailed me this week that there are there is a bibliography of over 235 sources to substantiate the fact that the 20th century does not end until the end of next year, and that the millennium does not end until the end of next year. So, for those of you who have somehow gotten confused and caught up by the idiocy of mainstream media and Madison Avenue procedures. We are not beginning any kind of millennium next year by any uh, rational chronological calculation. I just have to get that in there. 
to combat the lunacy. Spent yesterday, a good bit of yesterday in Times Square watching the lunacy in preparation for this down in New York. And I'm sure glad I'm not going to be there on Friday. What is zoo? What is zoo? Open your Bibles with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4 will continue our study of this most significant paragraph, James 4, 7 through 10. There are ten imperative verbs in these four verses, and in total they outline God's grace recovery procedure. We have spent a good bit of time looking at the two in verse 7 because it brings in the whole aspect, the spiritual dimension related to our failure, related to the fact that in this life we do have an enemy who goes about as a roaring lion. It is a real person. He is the most beautiful, the most intelligent of all the creatures God ever created, and that he is known as the devil and Satan. And as I look at this, the more I look at this passage, the more things I see, one of the things I have noticed is that there are these five mandates And in these four verses, they are divided into pairs. So that the first phrase or the first series of mandates, for example, in the verse we'll begin to look at uh, in verse 8 tonight, draw near to God, that's the first mandate. Uh, It is explained then by two mandates to cleanse and to purify. In verse 9, you have two mandates, or three really at the beginning, be miserable, mourn and weep. And then that is explained by the next clause. So there is this general command and then a, uh, another command that explains the specifics or the mechanics of the first. But in total, what you see here is the description of what is necessary to recover in the spiritual life when you have succumbed to extreme carnality or reversionism. And we discussed reversionism and went through that doctrine when we looked at verses 3 through 6 and we saw that in in the believer's life not only can you still commit every single sin you could commit before you were saved but now that you are involved in the angelic conflict and spiritual warfare you may discover a whole realm a whole plethora of sins that you never before considered simply because Now that you have entered into angelic conflict, you're a target, a spiritual target, and so you may get caught up in some things you never anticipated before you were saved. When we trust Christ as our Savior at that instant, God does 39 irrevocable things for us and one revocable. The 39 irrevocable things all relate to positional reality in Christ and our eternal relationship with Him. We are entered into Christ at the instant of salvation through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This top circle represents the eternal dimension to our relationship with Christ. The permanent facets, that which is true for all time and eternity. The bottom circle represents just the day-to-day temporal aspects of that relationship. For example, in the top circle, we see that we are united with Christ. We have salvation. Nothing that we can do can lose that. However, the bottom circle describes just that moment-to-moment walk that we have that's described as the walk by means of the filling of the Holy Spirit. We studied in Galatians 5, uh, 16-25. Now, filled with the Holy Spirit is when is the empowerment of the spiritual life. We are filled 
by means of God the Holy Spirit. What we are filled with is the Word of God, and we've studied that in Ephesians 5.18, Colossians 3.16. And whenever you sin, that affects our relationship with God. Remember, God is absolute righteousness. That is the standard of God's character. He is plus R. God is perfect righteousness. And what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God executes. So when we violate the righteousness of God, something happens. How much sin is necessary to cause a breach in our fellowship with God? That's the important question. Too often it's overlooked. Too often people think, well, it's not too bad if it's just a small sin. But what's a small sin? Adam just ate a piece of fruit. And look at all of the tragedy that resulted from eating a piece of fruit because it was prohibited by God. Too often we want to relativize sin, and it's true that there are relative consequences. For example, mass murder, genocide, certainly has consequences that are far worse than simply telling a, a lie, telling someone they look nice when they don't, uh, something like that. The consequences are much worse in, in uh, certain sins, but in terms of a, it's impact on our relationship to God, anything that violates the righteous standard of God is going to create some breach in our walk with God, not in terms of our eternal relationship, but our moment-by-moment enjoyment of the benefits of our salvation and our relationship to Him. When we sin, it's called quenching the Holy Spirit and grieving the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 4.30, in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, and walking in darkness, 1 John 1.6. It's called carnality in 1 Corinthians 3.1-3, which means at that point we are operating according to the sin nature. Now, if we utilize 1 John 1.9 and recover quickly, we're simply carnal. But if we decide we get out of fellowship and we really enjoy it out there and we uh, decide that the Lord really doesn't know what's best for our lives then we stay there for lengthy periods of time, and so we begin to reverse the course of our spiritual growth. I often talk about the analogy that uh, the spiritual life is like driving a car uphill. You only have two gears, no brakes. You have neutral and you have drive. And you're either going forward or when you sin, you're going backward. And when we get out, in car- out of fellowship and in carnality, we stay there for any length of time, we begin losing ground and reversing the course of our spiritual life. That's why it's called reversionism. It's going backward. It is more than simply backsliding because it entails a tremendous amount of discipline and excessive carnality. And this is the problem that James is addressing in this congregation. We've seen it. Back in 3:13 through 15, where he described the basic problem was their mindset. He said, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. And right there he emphasizes the fact that in the spiritual life it is a, not simply a matter of thinking. It is to culminate in right character and right actions. So the end result is transformed living but it's not transformed living without first transforming the thinking. Now, let me give you an analogy to try to wake you up. What happens in our lives is we start off as a baby. 
And we, and those of you who are parents know this, you see the kids and they start their empirical exploration of the world and they start trying to, you know, they feel themselves and their hands and pretty soon they realize, wake up one day and they realize when they're wiggling their fingers and their toes that they're actually causing that. And so they began to be conscious of who they are and their own distinction from the world around them and they began to explore and they pick stuff up and they put it in their mouth and they play with it and they touch it and they have to have these little nubby toys so they get all their sensory perceptions developed. And in all that process, what's happening in their brain is that they are constructing a framework for interpreting reality. And they're developing a frame of reference with a grid, so to speak, within which they're going to evaluate and learn everything. And they're starting to find out what's up and what's down and what's out and what's them and what somebody else. And as that develops, the same thing happens in terms of how they explain life. For example, as you grow, you begin to see pain and suffering and heartache, and you start asking the basic questions of life. What's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? Why is there suffering? Is there a God? Is there something greater than us? What's right? What's wrong? How do I know what's right? What's wrong? How do I know if it's just my perception, if it's just my imagination, or maybe God's just dreaming all this, and I'm just a figment of God's imagination. That's one of Descartes' uh, procedures. What if it's just a figment of God's imagination, and this is all deception? And we all go through those stages, and we try to put life together and to explain everything in some sort of coherent whole. And what you were doing at the beginning stages, it's like sitting down with a jigsaw puzzle. And we've all gone through this procedure, and this is why I hate jigsaw puzzles, but they make good illustrations. You start off, and the first thing you start doing is you look for all the pieces with a straight edge. And you lay out your border, and you look for the corner pieces, and you lay those down. And then you lay out the corner piece, and then you pick up the, the cover so you have some idea of what it looks like. But in this case, for the sake of the illustration, you have no cover. All you have is all the pieces. So you're operating on whatever you think it is. See, this is exactly the condition of fallen man. Fallen man thinks that on the basis of his own experience and rational capability, he can understand and correctly interpret reality. And so what he is doing is making the picture what he wants it to be. And so he sits down, he puts it all together and starts laying all the pieces in place, And then he has his idea of what that picture looks like so that whenever he has an event, a situation, circumstance, adversity, whatever happens, he's able to understand and interpret it within that framework that he's constructed. Now, we've all gone through that procedure. Now, because we are fallen creatures, we have a fallen mind that automatically is geared to interpret all the data in terms of personal autonomy and independence from God and in terms of arrogance. So that means the whole picture is out of focus. Now what happens when most people get saved is they have in their mind this jigsaw puzzle. And they think that, let's say it's a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle. I saw a real brain burner the other day at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. It was a three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle. I would shoot myself. (laughs) So, here you have this construct. And see, the approach that most Christians take when they become a Christian, in our arrogance, we think 
that most of our puzzle is accurate. And all we need is to find those maybe 75 or 100 or at most 150 pieces need to be exchanged or repositioned. And so we're going to go to church and we're going to hear a few Bible stories and a few principles and we're going to learn some nomenclature and we're just going to reach in there and pull out about 75 of those pieces here and there and replace them or maybe dust them off and repaint them. But that's it. That is not the picture the Scripture gives. The Scripture says what we are to do is to reach down across that table and lay our forearm across it and wipe the whole thing off the tabletop and into the garbage can and start over from scratch. No matter what you heard from that saintly 8th grade English teacher who you just adored, she was wrong. She didn't know a clue about the Bible. No matter what you heard from your biology teacher in the 10th grade that you thought just knew all the answers, he didn't have a clue because he wasn't operating from the position of Scripture first. And whatever you thought of your friends, your best buddy, when you were going through uh, puberty and whatever values you picked up from your uh, gang and gym or drill team or whatever it might be, those values did not come out of the Scripture. And see, we've just absorbed all this from the world system around us. And that's what the Scripture describes as the cosmic system. It is all of the values, all the principles, all the priorities that is part of the culture that surrounds us. And James, in verse 15 of chapter 3, gives us three adjectives to describe that cosmic system, that frame of reference that we all have and develop. It is one earthly, which means which is opposed to heavenly. Secondly, it is natural. The Greek word there is sukikos, which is the same word in First Corinthians 2, 16, where it states the natural man. Sukikos, from suke soul, meaning the soulish man. This is the unbeliever who lacks a, a human spirit and thus a spiritual life, and that person is called the pneumatikos man. So this is sukikos. It is the wisdom that is related to the unbeliever. It's human viewpoint thinking. And then third, it is categorized as demonic. Now, what we don't like to hear is that the thinking that we have, the cosmic thinking, the human viewpoints thinking that we have that seems to work for us. See, when you're a baby, you begin to figure out how to make life work, how to solve problems, how to face adversity, how to get over the challenges of life so that you retain a semblance of stability and happiness and joy in what it takes to be happy. And the Bible says that everything that you're developing, because it doesn't come out of the Word of God and it's not done under the filling of the Holy Spirit, is demonic. I don't care how much it works for you, how happy it makes you. I don't care how, how good it seems, how wonderful it seems, how, how much it helps other people. It is classified in the Scripture as earthly, natural, and demonic. Period. That is the spiritual dimension because it is based on the same basic foundation of Satan's whole thought in the fall, and that is that he could make life work on his own, apart from God, and he didn't need any help or insight from, from the Lord. I remember reading a statement in a book on self-esteem written by Jay Adams a number of years ago, which always strikes people as a little harsh. And I think he was right. He made the statement, I would rather have somebody die 
drunk in the gutter than to make, give them some semblance of hope that they could solve the problems of life and find some semblance of happiness apart from absolute and exclusive reliance upon God. Now think about that. That sounds awfully harsh to the person who's operating on pure human viewpoint thinking. See, human viewpoint says, well, people ought to have a right to some level of happiness. But the Bible says, and we're going to see it especially in this passage, that any happiness that you have that does not come from a relationship with God based on Bible doctrine is a pseudo-happiness. And when it is based upon the concept that man can do it on his own, it is false and it is demonic. And therefore, it is ultimately harmful and destructive. And while it may be okay for some people in some arena to try to help people become uh, functional in life, that is not our goal as believers to help people be functional. Our goal is to drive them towards spirituality, towards either salvation by understanding the gospel, or be by moving forward in the spiritual life to grow to spiritual maturity. And the problem that James is facing here is this congregation of believers, and they are Jewish, Christ, Jewish Christians, are living in a set of circumstances where they are surrounded by unbelievers. They're going through some kind of testing, some kind of uh, persecution perhaps. Maybe it's from other believers and the way they are from other Jews. And the way they are handling it is on the basis of human viewpoint problem-solving and not on the basis of principles from the Word of God. And so they have given themselves over completely to sin nature control of the soul. They have gone into reversionism. And the result is described in, in, in chapter 4 as a complete fragmentation of the congregation and individually. So now he gives the solution to, for them to recover, starting in verse 7. Submit to God, recognition of authority orientation, to God and to His Word. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We saw last time and, and in our whole study of this aspect of spiritual warfare that the issue is always resistance, taking up a defensive posture. Hold your place here and turn with me to Acts chapter 7, I believe. Acts chapter 7. Acts 5. Acts 5, I was thinking about this yesterday as an illustration to show what I mean. And I want to just take a quick rabbit trail down here to bring this in before we go forward in our study of Acts. I mean of James 4. Acts chapter 5 is the story of Ananias and Sapphira and the only people in the Bible who are ever slain by the Spirit. But a certain man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and they kept back some of the price for himself. He didn't want to give it all away. That's understandable and there's nothing wrong with that. That's not the sin, okay? The sin is not the fact that you don't want to give everything you have to the local church. He kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, the sin is that he was telling them that I gave it all. He was operating on self-righteousness and he wanted a lot of attention because Barnabas, at the end of the last chapter, we're told, had owned a tract of land and sold it and brought all of that, the proceeds from that land sale to the church. So they wanted to get just as much attention. So they're operating on approbation lust 
and at this early stage of the church, this would create problems, so there's a very harsh disciplinary action taken. Verse 3, Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now, I just want to stop right there and analyze that phrase. It doesn't mean that Satan himself is indwelling Ananias. Ananias is a believer. He has not... It's not talking about that. It's talking about the fact that here in Ananias' brain... We'll have a little... Here's his head. He's a little odd shape because I can't draw. Here's his brain. Now, Satan apparently, and we see this from several passages, can and the demons can somehow put into our brains, suggest ideas, temptations, thoughts. Okay, so here are some thoughts, some ideas, and the source is Satan and the demons. Also, we have a sin nature that inhabits the genetic structure of our bodies, and that, of course, can tempt us. Here's our our soul, we have our mentality, our volition, our conscience, and our emotion, and our self-consciousness. Now, the sin nature can also be the source. Third source is the cosmic system. Now, it doesn't matter where the thought's coming from. Ananias, what's Ananias' solution? Here he is, Satan has put this thought in his mind. What's his solution? His solution is not to go out and bind Satan or attack Satan or rebuke Satan. The solution for Ananias would have been positive volition, apply doctrine, I'm not going to lie. I'm going to tell the truth. doesn't matter whether that source of that thought came from the cosmic system, from the sin nature, or from Satan. The solution is the same. The solution is apply doctrine. That's the means by which we resist the devil. And we did a study last time in the armor of God showing that the key issue in spiritual warfare is always taking up a defensive posture. It is never taking up an aggressive offensive posture against Satan and the demons in spiritual warfare. That is the path of arrogance and the path to destruction because only God knows what's going on in the spiritual realm. So we are to take a stand on the Word and just stand in the fortress that God has provided for us. Now, the, So we saw the first set of commands, submit to God, and it's left out in your English, but in the Greek you have the particle de, which is a conjunction and shows a connection between the first two commands. Submit therefore to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. So the issue is that by submitting in authority orientation, submitting to the Word of God, by doing that we resist the devil. That is always how you resist the devil, is by submitting to the authority of God's Word and Bible doctrine. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Then verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So you have two sentences in the English, and they are connected. The first describes the general activity, and the second describes the mechanics of how that takes place. But we need to do a little exegesis in review in order to understand the dynamics of what James is saying here. He says, draw near to God, and the Greek word here in the imperative... 
looks like this in the Greek. Whenever you have a double gamma, it's like an NG in Gizo. And it means to draw near, to approach, to come close to. Here it has the ingressive sense of beginning and action. I think all of these aorist tenses have an ingressive sense because they are out of fellowship. They are in extreme carnality. They're in reversionism. And what they need to do is recover, so they need to begin this whole process. They need to begin doing these things. And they have not been doing this. They have come under the overt pressure of persecution from the non-Christian Jews in the community and maybe to some degree from other Gentiles, and their response has been to solve the problem through seeking favoritism. Whenever the rich oppressor came into the congregation, they just bowed and scraped to him and tried to do everything they could to curry favor with the people in power who were oppressing them rather than taking their stand on the absolutes of doctrine. So that the norms and standards that were governing their soul and the problem-solving devices and techniques they were using had their source in the cosmic system and the sin nature. You see, man is always trying to solve his problems apart from exclusive reliance upon the grace of God. So they were currying favor with the wealthy and the powerful. The result is that by trying to solve their problem on their own, they were operating on the sin nature. This was nothing but arrogance. And we see that the arrogant skills start off with self-absorption, move towards self-indulgence, then self-justification, and then self-deception. Now, you can move from self-absorption to self-deception in a matter of seconds. And this can become cyclical so that it you go deeper and deeper into arrogance and developing uh, all of your uh, arrogant skills of self-absorption, self-indulgence, you justify your actions. You explain you have good reason for it. You have lots of excellent explanations for why you do it the way you do. And everybody around you nods their heads and says, of course, you are right. I can't see any other way to do it. So you feel better about yourself. But in the process, you've had to distort reality. You've had to twist the facts, both in your own mind and in telling others. You've had to leave God out of the picture. So when you leave God out of the picture and God's solution out of the picture, you're divorced from reality. And whenever we're divorced from reality, we can never have true happiness or true stability. And so then we just become more and more self-absorbed and focused on our problems. We begin to uh, uh, cry and whine and tell everybody about how hard life is. And, and then we become a little more self-indulgent in order to make up for that. And it just creates a terrible cycle of destruction. And this is what happened. And as a result of that... They were shifting blame. It wasn't their fault that things were so bad. They were just uh, doing what they could, what they felt was right. And so they were avoiding taking personal responsibility for their actions. We've seen that they operated on lust, materialism lust, power lust, and approbation lust. So much so that in verse 2, James said, You lust and do not have, so you commit murder, not physically, but in terms of, the, of a character assassination on one another in the congregation. So the congregation was fragmenting because they were fragmenting individually in their own souls. So the consequence of all of this carnality and reversionism is personal fragmentation and congregational fragmentation. 
And when James analyzes the problem, he says that it's rooted in their entire mindset. It's that jigsaw puzzle is completely false. And by being a friend with the world, in verse 4, they were in antagonism to God. There are only two options. It is, it is, the Bible presents it as complete. You're either one or the other. You're either a friend of God or a friend of the world. You're either antagonistic to God or antagonistic to the cosmic system. You can't compromise. I always think about the fact that you hear people say, well, that's so extreme. You need to just kind of balance that. Well, what do you do? Balance truth with error? And what it is is that people don't want to have a view of life that is so abrasive to those around them because that's exactly what divine viewpoint is to the pagan human viewpoint mindset. It's abrasive. When I say, when I quote Jay Adams and make a statement that it's better for somebody to die muddy drunk in the gutter than to think they can find happiness or success apart from God, that strikes us as harsh, as mean, as cruel. And yet what could be more cruel than to give somebody the false hope that they can have stability and meaning and purpose in life apart from reliance upon the grace of God and the provision of God. To think that somehow they're going to survive life and have uh, some sort of positive eternal destiny apart from trusting Christ alone for their salvation. And yet, that's what we do. We twist these things. So often, it sounds very harsh to paint the picture that Scripture paints. Now, let's review, before we get any further into this, the doctrine of adversity and stress. Now, we've gone over this many times, so I'm going to hit it fairly rapidly, but I want to have this stuff recalled to your mind to set the context for what we will see in these two verses, verses 8 and 9. Point number one, there are two kinds of pressures in life. Adversity and stress. Adversity is the inevitable outside daily pressure of life that seeks to attack and penetrate the soul. Adversity is all of the negative circumstances that we face in life, all kinds of hardships you might face, whether it's... uh, meteorological hardship or economic hardship or family hardship, uh, social hardship, uh, hardship in the realm of romance and marriage or whether you have children or kids that are rebellious or antagonistic, whatever it might be, we all face all kinds of adversity. Adversity is the inevitable outside daily pressure whereas stress is the optional inside pressure. Stress is the result of what you do to yourself when you face outside adversity. The ideas of a stress test, that, that for example, when you are uh, making something and you're making steel and you've laid it in its mold and it's cooled off and you put it under a pressure from the outside to see how, it, how much pressure it can stand to see if there are any internal flaws, hairline fractures or anything like that that cause it to crumble. And so the stress is that internal response to the outside pressure. Point two, adversity has three categories. There's suffering by association. This is suffering in relationship to living in the fallen cosmic system. Because we live in a fallen world, we're going to go through a certain amount of suffering and adversity. As Job said, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. 
It's inevitable. Second area of suffering by association is because we are living in relationship to someone in a divine institution that is operating on cosmic standards or carnal standards and because of the consequences that that brings we to suffer. For example, if you are a believer and you are advancing in your spiritual life and you're coming to Bible class and growing and you're married to someone who's either not a believer or is a believer in reversionism, then you're going to have to suffer right along with them when they go through divine discipline. If you're a believer and you're living in a national entity that is violating all of the establishment principles of Scripture, for example, someone living in Russia, then you are going to go through a certain amount of uh, negative consequences and adversity as a result of that. So that is suffering by association. Then we have suffering from the law of volitional responsibility. That means that you make bad decisions and you suffer the consequences. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Hosea 8, 7 says it more poetically. For they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. This is suffering for volitional responsibility. Then you have uh, another category of suffering, which is uh, suffering for blessing, and that is when God brings suffering into your life as a believer. It may originate as suffering by association or suffering uh, under the law of volitional responsibility, but then because you are in fellowship, you can handle it through doctrine, and it becomes suffering for blessing to accelerate spiritual growth. Third point, adversity is what the outside circumstances of life do to you. Stress is what you do to yourself. Remember, adversity is inevitable and stress is optional. So adversity is that what the outside circumstances do to you. Stress is what you do to yourself. And point four, adversity is inevitable. Stress is optional. So it depends on your volition. Stress is the result of your failure to utilize God's stress busters to solve your problems. It's volitional. Point five, stress in the soul always results in sin nature control of your life. Whenever you face a circumstance, an adversity, and you decide to handle it on your own resources, that means at that moment you've gone negative to God and God's grace and the sin nature takes over control and you're operating on arrogance and the arrogance principles. So stress is tantamount to sin nature control of the life and causes carnality, reversionism, moral and immoral degeneracy, and destroys your capacity for life, love, and happiness. Point number six, stress perpetuated in the soul means a failure to glorify God and therefore spiritual failure and collapse. And point seven, the only solution is the divine solution. Second Corinthians 12, 8 through 10, when Paul is dealing with the thorn in the flesh, God says in verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is matured in weakness. Paul's response then is, Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And the point there is that God's solution is the only solution. All other solutions may work. The issue is not, does it work? If you ever learn one thing from me, I want you to learn that. See, Americans are pragmatic. And Americans believe that if it works, it's right. I mean, that's just part of good old American pragmatism. 
And just because something works, just because you find some way of dealing with problems in life, and it seems to work, that it's right. But there are a lot of things that work for a while. And going out on a bender works. I mean, you go out and get drunk every night, it certainly makes the problem go away for a while. But that doesn't mean it's a good long-term solution. You know, drugs can work. Some go out and have a lot of problems in life. Go out and smoke dope every night. Problems go away and you feel good for a while. But eventually, everything falls apart, as we'll see in this passage. So now let's get back to verse 8. Draw near to God. What does that mean? First thing I think of is people I've heard, oh, God felt so close to me tonight. Didn't you just feel close to God? Wasn't that? And this is evaluating one's proximity to God on the basis of an emotional or experiential criterion. So the question we need to ask is, is that a valid criterion? Let's look at how this is described in the Scriptures. Hold your place here, and we're going to bounce around to a few passages to put this biblical picture together. Let's turn to Matthew 15:8. Matthew 15:8. Now here in Matthew 15, Jesus is quoting Isaiah, and he says, "Well, let's get the context. He's having a conflict with the Pharisees, which is pretty standard. And he says, um, Let's go back to verse 5. You say, whoever shall say to his father or mother, anything of mine you might have been helped by has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. And thus you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. The point is they've so qualified the commandment of how they're to honor their father and their mother that they virtually turned it on its ear so that the children don't have to do anything for their elderly parents. They've invalidated the Word of God for the sake of tradition. So they've established a traditional interpretation that basically uh, takes all the impact away from from the command to honor the parents. You hypocrites, verse 7, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people honors me with their lips, just lip service, but their heart, that is their mental attitude, the core of their thinking, is far away from me. There's no real doctrine there in their heart. Their heart is far away from me. Now, far away is the opposite of draw near. What causes them to be far away? What causes them to be far away is they're operating on a false interpretation of doctrine. It has nothing to do with experience. It has to do with the fact that they have distorted the doctrinal teaching of Scripture. They have twisted it, so they've made, made it invalid. So, moving away from God has to do with disobedience to God's Word. Now, let's go to another passage. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 7, the other end of the New Testament now, almost. Hebrews chapter 7, and the passage here is talking about the superiority of the priesthood we have in Jesus Christ compared to the Levitical priesthood. So, you as believers are all royal priests under God. Every single one of us at the point of salvation became, was appointed a royal priest under God, which means we have immediate access to God in prayer. Remember, a role of a priest 
was to enable people to come to God in prayer and to have a relationship with God. He was the uh, mediator, the intermediary between man and God, and men went to God through a priest. The priest's job was not to interpret the Word of God to people. There is a denomination that always makes a big deal about the priesthood of the believer. And every year or so when their uh, annual convention comes up, they're always fighting about interpretation of Scripture and inerrancy of Scripture. It's been a big battle for about 20 years now. And it used to always aggravate me when I was in one of their churches because people always talked about, well, the priest or the believer means that everybody has a right to interpret the Bible any way they want to. Well, that's just pure subjectivity. You can say it means X and you can say it means non-X. And I have to say, well, both of you are right because as priests you have the right to interpret Scripture. But the problem is that priests never interpreted Scripture. That was never the role of the priest. That's the role of the prophet, not the role of the priest. The role of the priest is to bring people to God. So in the context of this passage, we're talking about priesthood, which has to do with coming into the presence of God, which is what we're talking about in James 4, drawing near to God. So in Hebrews 7:19 we read for the law made nothing perfect showing the inadequacy of the Mosaic law and on the other hand there is a bringing in of a better hope that is the new covenant what we have in Christ through which we draw near to God. Now if you look back at the context in verse 18, it talks once again about the setting aside of a former commandment and coming, the bringing in of a new commandment. So drawing near to God is related to procedure and mandates of the Word of God. Now that we've established that, let's go back and see how this is used in the Old Testament. A couple of times, there are a couple of very suggestive passages of what it means to draw near to God. And what we're seeing is it doesn't have anything to do with emotion. about it, it has to do with your relationship to the commands of Scripture. Let's look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 5. Exodus chapter 3, verse 5. The situation here is the call of Moses when God speaks to him in Horeb at the mountain of God from the bush that was burning yet was not consumed. Let's look at verse 4 to pick up the context. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, that is, when Moses turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, Here I am. Then he, that is God, said, Do not come near here. Notice the phrase, Do not come near here. In the Septuagint, which the Septuagint was the Greek translation from about the 2nd century B.C. of the Hebrew Old Testament, when they translated this, do not come near here, it was this same Greek verb, engizo, that we find in James. Do not come near here. It has to do with one's proximity and fellowship with God. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. So coming near to God now is going to be related to two aspects of God's character, His perfect righteousness and His justice. 
And as I say again and again, His righteousness is the standard, the perfect standard of His character, and justice is the application. So we cannot draw near to God if we are minus R. If there is sin in the life, because sin violates the character of God and the removal of Moses' sandals represents his, his recognition of who God is and removal of sin in the life. Verse 6, he also said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. So the whole context here is focusing on the perfect righteousness of God. Now turn over Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, one more book to Leviticus chapter 10. And we'll tie this together. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 3. It's talking about the priesthood, Moses' instructions to Aaron the high priest. Verse 3, Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near to me, I will be treated as holy. And the context here is of the rebellion of Nadab and Abihu and their disobedience to God by bringing strange or wrong fire before the Lord. So the issue again is coming near to God has to do with His holiness. Now when a believer sins, let's go back to James, when a believer sins, we are far away from God. We're not obeying Scripture. We're operating on false traditions. The Pharisees, when they were operating on the false traditions of their interpretation of Scripture, were far from God. That's comparable to cosmic thinking. So cosmic thinking drives us far from God. The only way to return to God there, then is to cleanse, or the, is, is the cleansing that takes place as a result of confession. Now draw near to God, and the dative, to God is in the dative is a dative of reference in the. Um, in the Greek, which indicates with reference to God, but what about God? It's with reference to His character. So it comes down to character and absolutes, and when we are out of fellowship and operating on the sin nature, we cannot draw near to God. The Scripture, the general command here is to draw near to God, and what? He will draw near to you. And this pictures fellowship. Fellowship can occur only if there is plus R and plus R. So there has to be, if there's sin in the life of the believer, that has to be dealt with. This is then described in the next phrase. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Except that's not what it says in the Greek. In the Greek, there are no second-person plural pronouns. We have to supply them in English, so it makes a little sense because the, obviously the command is a second person plural. You all cleanse. But it's very precise. It's simply cleanse hands sinners and purify hearts double-minded. Now this takes us back once again to Old Testament imagery. In the Old Testament, when you entered into the temple or the tabernacle, the priest first of all had to go in and offer a sacrifice at the brazen altar. This signified salvation. Then you came to the laver where they had to wash their hands and their feet, signifying confession of sin. 
hands what you do, feet where you go. They've done wrong things. They've been wrong places, sinful places. And they have to wash their hands and their feet before they can go into the presence of God. So that's what washing the hands symbolizes. And cleansing your hands is the Greek word katharos. Katharizo is the verb form. 1 John 1, 1.9 says, If we confess, that is to admit or acknowledge our sins to God, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. Katharizo, to purify us there. Cleanse, to cleanse your hands. Cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And that's the picture here. And this has to do with the first part of the solution. There's two aspects to the solution of drawing near to God. The first has to do with confession, God's grace recovery procedure, where we admit, acknowledge our sins to God, and we are cleansed from all unrighteousness. And cleansing is related to the noun uh, hamartoloi, the word evocative for sinners, cleanse, hands, sinners. So cleansing is related to sin. And then you have the next phrase, which is from the Greek word hognizo, the aorist active imperative from hognizo. And hognizo relates to purification and is often used in the Old Testament as a synonym for katharizo, But it is used in the New Testament as going beyond katharizo. See, it's not simply a matter of confessing your sins. It's a matter next of purifying your hearts, cardia. The cardia is the innermost thinking part of the mentality of the soul. Here's the mentality, two concentric circles. The innermost part is the cardia. We use heart many times this way. We talk about the heart of a matter. That's the core of a matter. We talk about the hearts of palm. That's the core of the palm tree. Talk about uh, the outer circle is the noose. N-O-U-S. And the, the, the two circles together represent the cognitive portion of the soul where thinking takes place. And the cardia is where our innermost, our core beliefs reside, where Epinosis doctrine resides. Now, if we look at 1 Peter chapter 1, you don't need to turn there. I'll just read it for you for sake of time. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.22, Since you have in obedience to the truth, that is doctrine in the Word of God, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls. Now, he's not talking there about salvation. He's talking about spiritual growth. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. So there he's using the word hognizo to refer to a process that it goes beyond confession, and that is to exchange the human viewpoint ideas that have dominated the inner part of your thinking from birth, that that, that jigsaw puzzle I talked about earlier, all those ideas and concepts we picked up from the world, the value system, problem-solving uh, techniques, everything, and you just wipe the whole thing off the table. That's hognizo. You, but you have to replace it. Once you take the human viewpoint out, you have to replace it with something, and that is divine viewpoint. So you have to purify your minds. How do you do that? Notice there... He calls them not sinners, 
but double-minded. And that's the word we had back in James 1, uh, where it is translated, they're double-minded. It's really disukos, which has to do with two-souled. This is the person who is completely unstable. Why? Because they're operating, they're trying, they, they've got one foot in the world, one foot on doctrine, and they're trying to do both. And you can't do that. If you have a little bit of doctrine mixed in, a little bit of human viewpoint mixed in with your doctrine, it destroys the whole thing. A little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. So you can't operate on, you can't see around and say, okay, well, I like this from doctrine and I like this over here and pick and choose and put your system together for how you're going to make life work. You know, it's either all doctrine or nothing. Don't play games with God. God doesn't care. If you're just going to say, okay, I want 10% doctrine, I want to come, I want to learn a few things, but I'm going to do everything else myself, it's not going to work. You can't just take that jigsaw puzzle and take out 50 or 75 pieces, replace them with some doctrinal pieces, and say, okay, now I'm doing things the way God wants me to. God wants the whole shebang, the whole agenda is God's agenda, it's not our agenda. And I see this happen in people's lives over and over again where God just wants to bring people to a position. They go through suffering and misery over and over again because God wants to bring us to a point where we're saying, okay, God, I'm going to do it 100% your way. That's it. I'm going to do it all by, by doctrine. My agenda's gone. I'm not going to, and we, we just don't want to give up those deeply held concepts and ideas and things we want in life. We want somehow to retain some autonomy and God just has to take us through more and more discipline in the process to realize we don't have a clue as to what will make us happy. And that's the point of verse 9. Verse 9, James says, Be miserable and mourn and weep. That's the first part of the verse. He's not talking about some kind of emotional remorse over sin. That's not what's going on here. Be miserable and mourn and weep. We have to, just as with the other verses, you look to the second half to explain the dynamics of the first half. He says, let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. You see, man, when, when we get into reversionism, mankind thinks that they can find happiness apart from God. And they go on the frantic search for happiness and they come up with all kinds of ways that they can find meaning and purpose and definition in life and happiness and joy apart from God. And what James is saying is, it's almost like a curse psalm. He's saying, let all those things that you think are going to bring meaning and happiness to your life fall apart so that you'll be absolutely miserable. It's a, it's a call for divine discipline so that you will realize that your life is empty. You cannot make life work apart from God, that all those things that you're using to try to find happiness and stability in life, may they all make you miserable so you'll realize the only solution is the divine solution. That's the thrust of verse 9. He wants them to be miserable and mourn and weep, not because they're having some kind of emotional, uh, gone on some kind of emotional jag to impress God with how sorry they, they are that they sinned, but he wants them to feel the impact of their autonomous, activities and their independent thinking and that life apart from God ultimately ends up in misery and unhappiness and self-destruction. And then he concludes in verse 10 with a phrase that uh, responds or, or that mirrors the initial command of verse 7. In verse 7 it was submit to God. In verse 10 it's the same thing. Humble yourself 
in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. Humbling yourself to the Lord is uh, submission to His authority. It is authority orientation. It is recognizing that it's not my will, Lord, but Thy will. It is not what I want, it's what you want. It's not my plan, but your plan. Not my agenda, but your agenda. And I am going to humble myself to you. And the only way I can do that is to learn exactly what your will is in my life, which means I have to submit to the teaching of God's Word. I have to learn the Word of God, and I have to learn to think, not just in bits and pieces, which is what you get if you show up Sunday morning now and then or every other week, It's amazing how we have to completely renovate the thinking in our minds. We have to remove everything that was there and completely replace it. It's a major project. It is not like calling the interior designer to come to your house and and redo a couple of pieces of furniture and to repaint the living room and everything will be fine. When you want the when you're serious about what the word of God is talking about, it's comparable to the Holy Spirit showing up at your house, not with a can of paint and some material, but with a bulldozer, and he's going to take the whole thing down to the slab and scrape it off and start all over. And until you're willing to let that happen and make learning the word of God a priority because it's the word of God under the teaching ministry and the filling ministry of the Spirit of God, that is what renovates us so that we can be mature saints of God. And anything less than that is just playing games with God. So we have to submit ourselves completely to His authority, and it's only then that we start seeing that renovation take place. Well, we'll stop there and start up with verse 11 next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for... What we've learned from Your Word, we pray that we'd be challenged by these things to recognize our own uh, autonomy, our own arrogance, our own desires to make life work apart from You, to fail to realize that in Your grace You have supplied everything for us and what You desire is for us to rely exclusively upon Your revealed will, upon Your Word, and upon the Holy Spirit to guide and direct us. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen.